This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, I'll do the intro once more. <laughs> Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in the Holy City of Jerusalem in Asia Torah. And we're overlooking the Temple Mount. And here we are at the center of the universe. And we're discussing three things today. Number one is God. The second one is Torah. And the third one is, is um, uh, transfer, transmission. Now... I apologize to everyone who uh, is just coming today because yesterday we did a fascinating class on knowledge in general because there's certain things you got to know. Now, because Torah is requiring, you know, thousands and thousands of laws, I mean, it requires thousands of things. So you kind of got to know it's real. You could still do it if you didn't know it's real, but I doubt you'd be dotting your I's and crossing your T's. I doubt you wouldn't, you'd probably wind up cheating here and there. You know, but it, and also a lot of Judaism takes place when you're by yourself. So if you don't know it's true and you're stuck, like let's say uh, anyone here in college, anyone here in university, mm-hmm. okay, you're in university, you're also in university, okay, you girls not in university, you're in university, okay. Any of you people who just raised your hand that you're in university are are not observant. Anyone not, a, not I don't want to ask that question. Bad question. Here's the here's the question. You've been studying all week for finals. You're exhausted. You just want to go to sleep Shabbos night. So you go to someone's house for dinner or the Hillel or the Chabad or the Aisha Torah branch or whatever. You went to dinner. You come home. You're exhausted. You get to your bedroom and you see the lights on. You forgot to turn off your bedroom light. Now, if, you're, if you just believe in Judaism, what's going to happen to that light switch? So it might be shut off. If you know for a fact that this is all real, like there really is a God... And the Torah is really binding, and, it's, and the transmission of how to live Judaism throughout the centuries or millennia is accurate. So then, okay, so you're, you're going to either put on sleep shades, or you're going to go sleep on the couch, or you're going to knock on a friend's dorm room and say, can I sleep over? You know, I left the light on in my place. You understand the difference between belief and knowledge? Belief, you might wind up compromising. Knowledge, you're much more likely to, to stick with it. You're much more likely to do the right thing at that point. Now, a lot of Judaism takes place alone. People don't know whether you're doing things or not. And one of the ways that we call someone a person of integrity is if they actually keep Torah when they're by themselves. People who keep Torah when they're by themselves are considered of very high caliber integrity. Now, are they always high-caliber integrity? Not necessarily, but, but they often are run on. You mind sliding over a little so I can speak to you, too? Hi. Now, um, so I'll just catch you up a little bit on what we did yesterday. Yesterday, we spoke about, we spoke about how, whether we can know there's a God, and the answer is we can know. What kind of knowledge, absolute or deductive? Which one? Deductive. You can't know with absolute knowledge that there's a God. It, you're going to be always relegated to deductive knowledge. But that's okay because you, f- you risk your life getting on airplanes with deductive knowledge. You'll get married based on deductive knowledge. You make investments based on deductive knowledge. We get in cars based on deductive knowledge. We do everything based on deductive knowledge. There's very few things we have absolute knowledge of, except for maybe that you got five fingers on your right hand. You know, that's about as good as you're going to get for, deductive no- for absolute knowledge. But most of the choices you make in your life are based on deductions. And that's fine. 
And that's all that's really required. Because if you can deduce, based on evidence, that there is a God, so now your life is, you know, that's done. Like, you know there's a God. Now, regarding there being a God without Torah, because for 24,400 years, for 2,400 years, we didn't have a Torah. So there was two and a half millennia with no Torah at all. 2447 was Mount Sinai. So that means there were two and a half millennia, no Torah. Meaning God, yes, Torah, no. And so what did you have? Was life meaningful? Does that make life meaningful? Well, it depends. I'll let you think about that. I'm not going to go into that right now. Now, today, we have Torah. We're going to start with how we know there's a God. So there's a few things about how we know there's a God. And first is the four second proof of God, which I'm kind of making famous, which is uh, before there was something, there was nothing. And since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. Did you get it? Got it? You get it? Before there was something, there was nothing. And since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. Because what does nothing make? Nothing makes nothing. But in this case, there was nothing, and now there's something. Then there was something. So when nothing, that never makes anything, but in this particular case, makes something, we're going to give it a title. You know? Like, let's say, uh, let's say, uh, I don't know who to take, for example, here. Uh, this gentleman here. What's your first name? Yoshua. Yoshua. Let's say Yoshua, he knows nothing about stock trading. Nothing. True. Is it true? Okay. True. So, but one day Yoshua is like, I don't know, he's really high or he's drunk. I don't know what he's doing. And he suddenly says, you know what? Let me just throw a hundred bucks into the stock market. You know? Anyway, he throws his hundred bucks in and he wins. Throws another hundred and he throws 200 bucks in and he wins double again. And he goes 400 and he keeps going and keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And keeps going. After a while, he's got knocks on the door. It's the media. He's, a, he's an overnight millionaire. Yeah. And, and what happens is he still knows nothing about trading. He knows nothing about trading, but he's suddenly going to get a title as like this boy wonder of stock trading. We're still going to give him the title. He'll be, he'll be in all kinds of magazines, financial magazine about this kid who like knew nothing, but just killed it in the stock trade one day. You know, having known nothing, didn't know what he was doing even. He was picking things randomly. He was pinning the tail on the donkey and, and he just made millions in one day. So they're going to call him like the, the you know, the, the the, the king who knows nothing or whatever, the, they'll give him a title. So we give God a title. We give God a title. Meaning we know nothing about God, just like he knows nothing about the stock trade. It's a little weird analogy, but we know nothing about God. But he does get a title. You know what the title is? The title is God. We're going to call him God. Now, what does God mean? Someone want to define it? I want to raise their hand and define the word God. No. Because it has no definition. There are two words that have no definition. One is God and one is love. Two words with no definition. God and love. Now, love, you can at least approach. God, you can't even approach because it's not made of anything. So how are you ever going to define something that's not made of something? You can't even define it at all. Love, you can't define for other magical, mystical reasons. But God, you can't define because it's not a thing. So how are you going to define something that's not a thing? Can you just dump those on the table, please? So you can eat them without the bag. So, or not eat them. <laughs> I, I want you to eat. I'm a Jewish man. You know, eat. I'm married to a Jewish woman. Es mein kind. 
you know, the guy, a guy, a beggar comes up to a Jewish lady and says, lady, I haven't eaten in three days. She says, force yourself. <laughs> I've been hanging around a Jewish lady for 23 years now, so I, I never want to stop someone from eating in my class. Now, the... Anyway, so we have no definition, but because God made this world out of absolute nothingness, and we have no idea what God is, we're still going to give it a title, just like we'd give you a title. You get a title, all the magazine, they come up with some cool title for you, and then you'd, now you'd be on talk shows, and they'd, give you, they'd say, oh, the so-and-so's here, you know, with that title. <coughs> Do you deserve that title? Not really. Why not? You just got, well, you deserve whatever title you can be getting from having a day of lucky trading. In this case, we're going to call it God. God means nothing anyway. No one knows what it means. It doesn't have any definition. But we'll call it God because it made the world. Now, there's another thing about God and how we know there's a God. There's many ways we know there's God. Uh, one of them is crying. Crying. Because God created the world and he created human beings. And human beings cry. Well, how come the rest of the world doesn't cry? Every animal in the world has tears. It has to have tears but it doesn't cry. And what it has is it's just enough tear to lubricate the eye because the eye has to move. And so it needs that saline, saline fluid to move the eye. Human beings can create some, you know, 10,000 times amount of saline when they're sad because we're a, we are part of the creation, but we're extremely complicated. We're extremely complicated emotionally. And emotionally complicated beings need to be able to reset and the only way to reset is to cry. You can't reset yourself. If you've ever had pain, it now will affect you the rest of your life until you get it out, until you cry it out. And now toddlers know this trick very well. <laughs> I've seen a few toddlers even today crying. I was walking around the streets. I saw a couple tantrums here and there. The kids were crying and they, you know, I forget when one wanted his father to push him on the bike. And when I was coming up my street earlier and the father was just like, push yourself. And the kid threw a fit and just but was crying. They, they know the trick. When's the last time you cried like that? About your own pain, not about something you saw on the news or some movie. For some people, it's years. It's years. But then we hold the pain. So then we walk around like a shell of a human being. And then we can't cry over anything because we're afraid if we open up one thing, well, then it all comes out. And so after a while, we're just, everyone's just walking around with a giant cork in their heart. And this giant flood of, of emotion that's stuck in there. And then, of course, for people like that, sometimes weird stuff comes out. Because, you know, like, it usually comes out all over their spouse, actually. Uh, all kinds of weird ways when you've got a lot of pent-up pain in your heart. Wind up, uh, those are the people with chronic pain, actually. They get weird ghost pain. They get stomach issues. They get, you know, they get all kinds of stuff. Because you have two choices in life, emotional pain or physical pain. And physical pain is a wonderful mask for emotional pain. That's why so many people will get helped in some way or another, but they just, they'll still have the pain. Even if they have surgery, they'll still have the pain. And, and half the stomach issues people have, you know, digestion, tr digestive, the digestive tract will, uh, is almost always emotional. So are a lot of muscle pains, joint pain is often emotional. So another proof of God is he gave us a wash cycle. How is it that our eyes can produce a thousand times the tears necessary to lubricate the eye? 
So it must be that whatever made us knew that we would have to wash clean. That, we, that for us to be well, we got to wash clean. Another thing is how well your life's orchestrated. Now, it's a shame we don't all keep a ledger of the things that were orchestrated in our lives. Does anyone want to share something that was orchestrated for them in the last 24 hours? Okay, we got someone right there. You mind if, you mind if we, I spin this around? or It's up to you. Sure. Everyone else doesn't mind? She's like fixing her hair. You look marvelous. You look marvelous. Go for it. You what? I try to daubin three times a day. Yeah. Um, and I was daubing Mincha and like asked for something like Kanasa. Yes, for financial well being and stuff. Yeah. Financial well being. In your prayers. Yeah. And uh, I signed on to my Bank of America account. Yeah. And realized like, oh, I got paid a lot more than I thought I would get paid. So uh, it's like proof that. Hashem, like, like, really listening to you. Very nice. Well, there's probably a few people in the class who would like to know if, if that money was in there while you were praying already, but you don't know. I won't know, but, you know, you won't know. But the money's there. Yeah, it's uh-huh. there. It's well, there's some people who know this trick really well, so they never check how much money they have. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if a lot of farmers, Jews and Gentile farmers, do not count their grain. You know, they just let God play his games. You know, you, they say uh, miracles happen for things that are not counted. So, because once you count it, once you've quantified it, you haven't left God a lot of, like, room. So you want to be careful not to quantify things too much. On the other hand, don't be financially irresponsible. So you got to kind of walk the balance of financial responsibility, but at the same time, don't, you don't want to know too much of what's in your, in your what, do you, what you got. Yeah. You had to pay a bill and it was enough. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I can't tell you how many times I've opened my account to find money there that I have no idea where it came from. Yeah, it's happened to me a lot because I almost never see how much money I have. Okay. Um, anyone else got a story, a recent story where it's just a total anomaly, like amazing that it... Yeah, like it just, you can see someone orchestrated it. That it was totally orchestrated. You want to, well, we got several people here. Okay, do you, do you, okay, well, I know this side's already getting filmed, so we're going to come back to you guys. Okay, do you guys mind if I bring the camera to him? No, no, you, oh, you're going to move? No, I'm not going to. If the answer is yes, then I will not film him. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I flew... Uh... Leave, it to, leave it to women, by the way. Men, like, they just, they wake up and they walk out the door. And if you film them, they're just like... <laughs> women actually spend time on themselves. And the second you put a camera on them, they're diving under the table. Like, figure that out. You know, like, does that make any sense? And maybe it's all that advertising making everyone feel ugly. Because men don't get advertising make us feel ugly. You understand? They, that just wouldn't go over well with men. <laughs> Our billboards and advertisements don't say you're fat and ugly, okay? They just don't say that. But yours do. So it could be they're actually working, meaning they're actually succeeding in their, uh, in their marketing. Yeah. <laughs> men wouldn't put up with that. <laughs> Tell us we're fat and ugly. Yeah, please. Yeah, what happened to you? Okay. Well, basically, I, I uh, haven't been to Israel in over 23 years, so I decided Welcome to Welcome back. Thank you. On, 94. Uh, July 25th, the day after I sent my son to sleepaway camp. So I said, I'm going to go to I'm adult it. camp. Adult camp. And um, so basically, I, I 
I make a long story very short. I was going to go to to Ascend first, which is up in Sfat, yeah, and study there, and then come to Jerusalem, and then go back up to Ascend. So none of the the trip was planned. It was just really going to be as I, I desire in my journey. And uh, so the only thing that was a little bit concerning is how I would get to Ascend to Sfat because I haven't been here for over twenty years, and a lot of North American media are a little afraid of certain areas. So I had to take a train from. Tel Aviv, to Don't Apple. give us the long story. It's too much information. Okay. So I was a little bit concerned about that, of how I would get there. And um, basically what happened is on the plane I met somebody who was had a son was doing a bar mitzvah in Sfat, and I got a luxury drive all the way up to Sfat. Amazing, right off the plane. Awesome. What was yours? The Kitzer version, please. Yeah, okay. Quick version. <laughs> um, I wanted to go to a seminar really badly. It was out of state, and I wanted to go with my sister. And the ticket prices were really high, and I kept on, you know, I called travel agents or whatever. And then I hung up the phone. I said, "If God, if you want me to go, then please just make the tickets under two hundred dollars." There was no way they never went down. I checked the next time; it was under two hundred dollars. Uh, amazing. Okay, go ahead. Kids, a couple months ago, I was looking for electric guitar, but in Israel, the prices are like double or like triple and like you, you don't know who you're buying it from it's gonna be good and uh a couple of weeks ago my bassist i don't know i never asked him i don't know if he like he had he like i have electric guitar just sitting in my room and it was like like a gorgeous guitar and he just gave it to me it was cool wow yeah these stories abound i'll, I'll film them without filming you you ready i'll just put them on the right side of the screen <laughs> <laughs> go ahead I had, switch, I had to switch rooms when I was standing a few days ago. Yeah. And uh, yesterday there was a, in my previous room there was a leak and it was flooded the entire room. It turns out the room was my, flooded. My previous room. The place you were gonna get. Yeah. No. Switch room. I was sleeping in one room. I had yeah. To switch. Yeah. And yesterday I saw in the room where I was first uh-huh. there was a leak and it was, the whole floor was flooded. Wow. Very good. By the way, I made you fr- the front row. Front row, I made you guys anonymous. Look at my hand. <laughs> you guys are anonymous over there. Um, very nice. Um, you know, my wife wrote an article this week in uh, Bina magazine, and it was about it was about us. Um, oops, did I just flip the camera? Sorry. Um, it was about our, a trip we made to the national parks in America, and we were going for ten days to like. You know, Utah, southern Utah, wilderness, no kosher food, anywhere, like, at all. Like, we had to bring absolutely everything. So we bought a bunch of meat, and when we finally got out, like, I don't know, maybe we were, like, eight hours out already in our van, our 15-seater, with, uh, you know, 13 of us. When we got to the, uh, like, out about eight hours away, we get a phone call from my sister-in-law saying that we forgot all the meat in the freezer. <laughs> so like 10 days, like what are you gonna serve, you know, out there? And, um, but lo and behold, while we were in LA, we wound up at a Chabad bar mitzvah. And the Chabadnik way over ordered. And while we were leaving for our trip, the Chabad, you know, rabbi came up to us and like, um, can you guys please take the chicken from the bar mitzvah? And it was like trays and trays of chicken. We're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we don't need any more meat. He's like, come on, please, just take it, just take it. And we're like, no, we don't need your meat. And then he's finally like, take it, you know, just in case. 
And he like slides it into our van that had no room in it. And he's like sliding in these trays of chicken. It was like, it was like, you know, like 50, you know, pieces of chicken into our van. Anyway, we ate chicken for 10 days. <laughs> and my wife's become a new expert in like different ways to arrange chicken. You know, <laughs> ground chicken, chicken sandwiches, burritos with, you know, Mexican uh, spice, you know, we, we ate chicken for the whole week, but it was, it was like, he, he made us take that chicken. Like, how did he know? Well, he didn't know, but it's orchestrated. Anyway, another way we know there's a God is by the orchestration. Now I pity the foo who feels like, you know, everything's happening by chance. Because chance just doesn't conspire like that. You understand? Chance isn't running some conspiracy to keep taking care of you all the time. Chance isn't doing that. But you are getting taken care of all the time. You're always getting taken care of. Plus, I'll show you another thing. And I'm not going to film you guys for this just because it's enough already. But raise your hands if you've ever been through a hard time in your life. Raise your hand. Hi, I don't want an L. I want a vote. Okay, give me a vote. Okay, so those watching, everyone's hands are up because there's no person who didn't go there. No, no, up. Everyone's hands are up because no one didn't go through a hard time in life. Okay, keep your hands up. If later over the years you got to understand exactly why you had to go through that, keep your hands up. <laughs> same hands are up. You know, same hands are up. So what's up with that? Because when you were in that trouble, you would have done anything to get out of trouble. You'd pay a lawyer, you'd go to a shrink, you'd like, you know pay off some other thing that would somehow get you out of trouble. How many people come up to me just saying, please, Rabbi, get me out of trouble? You know, and, and now I would have to say, you know, I'm happy to help you through it, but out of it, maybe this is what you're supposed to be dealing with right now. I don't say that. I don't say that. But it often is the case, if not always is the case. And it's not just us in this room. It's all seven billion of them. Seven billion people. If 10 years later you ask them why they were going through what they were going through in, in 2018, and you ask them in 2028, I bet you almost all of them would be able to tell you a story or two about why they went through what they went through, and even very harsh stuff. I mean, there are people on the planet who are going through hell right now, and, but they would somehow understand it later. You know, you could ask Nelson Mandela, who spent the majority of his life in jail, you know, what that was all about. I bet you he, he was a wise person. I bet you he had something to tell you about all those years in jail. And um, anyway, it's all got a purpose. It's all got a plan. And, and the world really works that way. Now, by the way, an interesting test of spirituality is whether it takes you 10 years. <laughs> if it takes you 10 years to figure out why things went wrong, that's not very spiritual. If it takes you a year, it's pretty spiritual. It takes you a few months to figure out why you went through what you went through. Even more spiritual. Takes you a week. Even more spiritual. Takes you a day. Like, okay, you're licking your wounds all day, but by the end of the day, you're like, ah, I get it. Now you're even more spiritual. But what's, who's the most spiritual person? Yeah, while it's happening. When you can get yourself to the point where something's going south, meaning it's not going the way you want, and within, in real time, you're able to say to yourself, I... I get it. I get it. Or even, you can even say, I don't get it, but I get that there's something to get. And you can keep chill and be in that moment. 
That's a truly spiritual person. Now, of course, there's a lot of definitions for spirituality, and that's just one of them. But one of them is that you're, you live your life in real time, that you realize there's a God who's orchestrating things. There are no mistakes. God doesn't make accidents. That whatever you're going through is meant to be. It's part of a greater plan. Now, we want to get in real time with that. Again, of course, 7 billion people on the planet would take about 10 years to get a nice, you know, get up to the 85, 90% of them saying like, okay, now I get it. But it shouldn't be taking you 10 years. And now, of course, we're Jews in this room. At least most of us are Jewish, I think. If you're taking long about anything in your life, it's time for you to finally wake up and come to peace. You've got to wake up from that. Wake up from, you know, the, I don't know. Obviously, it serves you to be angry about whatever you went through. It's, the resentment serves you. For some reason, you think you're, you're getting something out of that, but you're not. You're not getting anything out of that. It does not serve you. You have to figure out some things. You've got to figure out why they serve you and then figure out why they don't serve you and let it go and realize that it was all part of the plan. Um, other way we know that there's a God is, is also just the order of things because we're in an expanding universe that should create more chaos, yet there's a tremendous order. So the fact that order is happening in chaos is also a very divine element and we even have a name of God about order. It's called uh, Shin Dalad Yud. It's one of God's names. Uh, it's on mezuzahs, on, you know, by our doorposts. Shin Dalad and Yud. It means Shet Dai, um, which means that it's enough. It's a limiter. Order. Creates order. So it's one of God's, has, God has expansion names, and he's got order names. And one of the proofs of God is the, the great order of creation. Um... We're going to go to Torah. Yeah. You had a question? No, We're going to Torah. 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 <coughs> now, how do we know that the Torah is divine? How do we know the Torah is, is, you know, the real deal? Well, there's several ways to know. One of them is right out this window right here. I'll just give you a little peek out the window. Um, right out this window is the Temple Mount, and there is the the stones of uh, of the times of King David and his son King Solomon, where David began the building of the temple, King Solomon finished the temple, and David would have finished the temple. It's just that the uh, because he had to fight a lot of wars, he it wasn't for him to finish it because of the blood on his hands from war, whereas King Solomon lived in a more peaceful time. And it was up to King Solomon to finish the temple. Well, that temple is one of the proofs of Torah. Not to mention the city of David. Down below, um, the city of David, which is, uh, you know, right below where we're standing here. Uh, we have the ruins of David's temple, of David's Jerusalem. We have coinage with David's name on it. Now, there's no archaeologists in the world who claims there was no King David. That's, that's not possible because we already have, you know, we have a lot of information about the time of David and including his coinage as the king of Israel. So that's not like on the, uh, that's not on the doubt list. But what's interesting about this is it's only 400 years between Sinai and Jerusalem being built by King David. It's 400 years. So a lot of us, a lot of, you know, there's people out there who would like to say that, well, 
over 3,330 years, you know, maybe you could make up that the Torah happened. Right? You can, like, a lot can happen in 3,000 years that maybe the Torah was made up. But we're really only talking about 400 years because King David was the king of Israel. Okay? He was the king of Israel. And we know exactly who was around those days. We have all the history. We know exactly who was king right before him. His name was Saul. And we know it all the way back. We have the line. We know all the names of everybody. We, we know where tombs are of these people with their names on the tombs of the exact same, of the people themselves. King, uh, King David was, did not discover Judaism, that's for sure. He didn't like come up with Hebrew, yet he wrote the book of Psalms. So, like, where do you figure all that out if there wasn't already a Judaism? Well, the answer is there was a Judaism. And King David even has a psalm talking about the whole exodus of Egypt, that whole story. More than one psalm about that. Well, who's he, talk, who's he talking to? Who's, who's he explaining that to? Is he making that up? And if anyone's listening to that, you know, if King David's writing about the history of the leaving of Egypt... So who's going to be listening to that history? Who's going to be reading that? And the answer is a population of people who are direct descendants within the last few hundred years of people who were there. Now, if they weren't there, they're going to certainly say, I don't know what this is. This is a bunch of gibberish. So one of the ways we know it's for real is the fact that it's, it would be really hard to make up an entire Torah in 400 years. Until there's an entire civilization of Jews living in the land of Israel. But if you go further back 400 years to Mount Sinai itself, so you have, the Torah says the entire nation was standing there. Well, that's called national revelation. That means there's a national prophecy. Well, how do you do that? If there wasn't a national prophecy, how do you ever pretend there was? Because at any generation that you would come and say, oh, you were part of these people, it's just they forgot. Or you were part of these people, but they died. And so that's why you don't know about it. You would ask Uncle Joe. You'd ask Aunt Edna. You ever heard of such a thing? How do you ever tell anyone that they were part of three million people who stood at Mount Sinai if they weren't there? Like, I can't tell you I saw you at the Super Soul in Tel Aviv yesterday because you just say I wasn't there. So it's the same type of thing when it comes to Torah is that you, you have three million people there. So the Torah says that's what happened. But how do you ever impress that upon people unless it did? That's called national revelation. Another one is that, is that the Torah has in it suicidal commandments. There are two specifically suicidal commandments, and one of them is to rest the land every seventh year. On the seventh year, you're not allowed to plant the land. Now, that's a dangerous thing that you're not allowed to work the soil of Israel. Not allowed to plant, not allowed to work the soil, not allowed to, to, you know, you're just not allowed to grow your food on that year. Well, what are you going to eat if you don't grow your food? And then the Torah says, well, in answer to what are we going to eat, it says that every sixth year you will get a triple crop. You'll eat that crop all the way through, throughout the rest of the sixth year, the seventh year, and then the eighth year you'll eat it until you harvest the eighth year's crop. Well, who can promise that? Who can promise that commandment? God. Only God can promise that commandment. If a human being was going to write the Torah, he would leave that part out. Or he'd say, you want to rest the land, rest it in seven, 
you know, rotate it every year for seven years. But don't rest the entire land. And what kind of person can promise a, a crop every six years that's going to last for three, a triple crop? So if a human being wrote the Torah, he might have gotten lucky the first time, the second time, but how many, how many times in a row can he get lucky with that triple crop every six years? You just leave it out. If you're trying to convince people of Torah, you just leave it out. Farmers know on their own to rest their land because it depletes the soil. You don't need a commandment to rest the land. It's a totally unnecessary commandment. But to make the whole nation rest the land is the ultimate sign of trust, you know, for all of us to rest the land, which is sevens are all about trust. Just like Shabbat, we don't work, we trust. In the seventh year, we trust. I don't know how much you have to trust when you get a triple crop every six year, but, but seventh year is about trust. Yeah? Say that again. No, no, the triple crops the year before you rest it. Okay, next is pilgrimage festivals. The Torah says that you got to party in Jerusalem. You guys like to party? So you got to party in Jerusalem three times a year. Three times a year you got to party in Jerusalem. Now, the furthest away, city away from here is two weeks uh, walk or donkey ride. So it's two weeks here, a week of partying, and then two weeks back. That's five weeks. So all the border towns, especially the northern border towns, were it was a five-week trip. Now, are you allowed to leave soldiers on the borders? You allowed to leave soldiers? No. Every single able-bodied man, and also women are obligated to come as well. They, uh, that, now, a woman who gives birth or whatever, if there's a health issue or whatever, also a man if he's got a health issue, but certainly a woman who's you know, eight months pregnant should not be going on big pilgrimages and stuff like that when she's about to have a baby um, or post-birth. Uh, but, but able-bodied men for sure have no excuse whatsoever. They all have to come to Jerusalem. So what's going to be with our borders? What's going to be with the enemies on the other side of the borders? When every man, when all our borders are left completely unguarded, that's the commandment. We must party in Jerusalem and you cannot guard your borders. So you know what the Torah says about that? It basically says, when you wonder who's going to protect the land, the answer is that the Torah says that when you come to party in Jerusalem, the pilgrimage festivals, your neighbor will not covet the land. The neighboring countries will not covet the land of Israel. Well, can a human being control that? Can a man control that? So if you were writing the Torah, you just leave that part out. You can still throw parties. People throw parties all the time. Not everybody has to come. You know, imagine you throw a party and like everybody's got to come or else. You know, and by the way, it's punishment of death. I hate to say it, but it's a, it's a death punishment to not come party in Jerusalem, which is a little weird. Isn't that a little weird? I wasn't expecting that at all. When I saw that the punishment was death, I was like, come on, man. Like, all we're doing is partying. Like, I understand, like, death penalty for some things, but like, not to come to Jerusalem to party. You know, that's a little pushing it. But yeah, it says you're going to get wiped out, you know, if you don't come to party in Jerusalem. Uh, can someone here tell me why not partying in Jerusalem is punishable by death? Could someone explain that to me? I have an explanation. You want to hear my explanation? My explanation is the whole reason you're alive is just to connect to God. Like, God created this place. This is his video game, and our job is to look up at the video game engineer, the guy who engineered the video game. We're just supposed to go, yo, yeah, often, you should do that often. 
<laughs> meaning, meaning like when you found out there was money in your account or you found out the price of the tickets were cheaper or you, or you got a ride to Svat. When you're going to Svat, did you go, yo? You do that a couple times, yeah. <laughs> we're supposed to say yo to God once in a while. So, so now there's saying yo to God, sometimes in pain, sometimes in pleasure, but then there's a pilgrimage festival, the party with God in Jerusalem, where there's like, there were 10 miracles going on at all times. And, and the band, the Levites are playing their music and people are dancing in the streets and, and the barbecues are going. And, and uh, it's like, it's just an amazing connection to God you're having. And then you go back to where you're from. A lot of people don't know. Did you guys know that people didn't live in Jerusalem? Like us living in Jerusalem is kind of a new phenomenon. You don't live in Jerusalem. We were an agrarian culture. This is not where you, this is not really farmland here. This is Jerusalem. Jerusalem was for service of God. And there were Kohanic families that came and lived here. You know, Kohanim would come, the priests would come as, with their families and do the watch of the temple and do all the service. But the rest of Israel lived on the farmlands throughout the country. Jews lived in the farmlands. Come on in, you're good. Yeah, sure. Make yourselves at home. Oh, wow. Standing room only right now, but we're almost done anyway, so you can just chill over there. We were just talking about how Jerusalem was, uh, people would take pilgrimages to Jerusalem to uh, party with God, whereas uh, they lived where the farming was. People would live in the farmlands. Anyway, today we have a massive population. I think Jerusalem is the biggest populated city in Israel, actually, today. Um, which, is, which is interesting because it was not a place where people slept at all in Jerusalem. You came to party. You ever party for a week straight? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there were, there were all kinds of miracles and, and festivities going on. There were priests. Did I say priests? Sorry. There were sages. One of our sages was able to juggle... How many torches did he juggle? On? <coughs> Who was that? Eight, was it? I think it was eight. Everyone would come every year to watch one of the, the great rabbis... It was one of the like hardcore, like heavy duty, duty, duty rabbis who could juggle like eight burning clubs at once. I mean, I don't know if you know what that is to juggle eight. And he's just throwing them out. He's just like, like this. And do you think he was practicing that throughout the year? I bet he touched those clubs once a year. Knowing our rabbis, he was... It was not his skill that was keeping those clubs up in the air, meaning he was just like in such a place that juggling all those clubs was like, was just a part of just being in the zone. He was in the zone and he was able to do that with everyone watching and dancing. In, in those days though, the main dance floor was only people who knew all the secrets of the universe. <laughs> like that's, you couldn't just get up there and dance. You could dance where you were but to get, there was a main area where the, like the main dance floor was only if you knew all the secrets of the universe. If you knew the secrets of the universe, you were allowed to dance. You don't know the secrets of the universe? You could dance on the sides. You know, you could go like this with the guy next to you and stuff. But the people on the main dance floor knew the secrets of the universe, and they were doing all the major dancing. That's why that rabbi was, you know, he was probably in the center of all them, swinging his clubs up in the air, you know, burning, uh, what do you call those things? Not called clubs there. When people juggling fire... I don't know what you'd call those things. Clubs? I'm kind of thinking it's like something like the caveman bangs over his 
new wife's head, you know. But it's on fire. So, anyway. Other ways we know Torah is true without going into, I'm not going to go into any real detail here, is, is the codes in the Torah. That there's, there's things in the Torah, like, for example, um, uh, there's a lot encoded in the Torah. Now, there's things encoded in everywhere. I mean, if you look, if you look for the, the word uh, Aquanova, how many times that shows up in uh, any book? It's going to show up many times, meaning at, equidisc- at equidistant letter skips. You understand? If you look for the word Aquanova, equidistant letter skips in the phone book, in the library, in, in, in a dictionary, wherever you look, it's, it's going to show up many times in equidistant skips. But what if you actually break it down to the smallest equidistant skips? I mean, we want to know the smallest skips necessary to create Aquanova in this particular, in whatever book it is, you know, the Odyssey or whatever. I don't know what equidistant skips mean. Meaning, uh, uh, equidistant skips on here would be A... U and V, skips of two. They're equal skips of two. You understand? Now, if you get down to the smallest skips, and we ask, well, where's the smallest skip? So then you're, you're going to find it wherever you find it at the smallest skip. Okay, great. And certain things will be... Um, <coughs> It, what happens is you you begin you got to get into statistical tr- probabilities. Like for example, let's say you're looking up the Rambam, just Reish Mem Bet Mem. Well, that's going to be all over the place. But at the smallest equidistant skip, where are we going to find that? So with the smallest equidistant skip, we f- find it at fifty. Fifty. Well, what was the Rambam's greatest work? His greatest work was called the Mishnah Torah. Well, that's got eight letters. Well, whereas the Mishnah Torah show up, those eight letters show up at equidistant skips, smallest skip. Well, guess what the number is? Fitty, just like the first one. Hey, how'd that happen? How did the word Rambam and the word Mishnah Torah both show up at, 50, at an equidistant skip of 50? Like, that's not normal. That was, and then we can ask mathematicians, what's the probability of that? Well, what is in the Mishnah Torah? What's in the Mishnah Torah? Well, inside the Mishnah Torah, is all, he explains all 613 commandments. And then we look, well, where does Rambam and the Mishnah Torah come out? Well, you want to know where it comes out? From that first resh of the word Rambam, sorry, the last mem of the letter Rambam, the word Rambam, at exactly 613 skips is the word Mishnah Torah. Now, the Rambam lived a thousand years ago. He's clearly encoded in the Torah. The probability is almost no, none, meaning they actually have a mathematical equation of what the probability is. It's ridiculous. It's like one to the whatever, you know, like some insane number of the possibility of that. Where it has Rambam at the same equidistant skip as Mishnah Torah, div- separated by 613 letters. Futuristic, too. What's that? It's futuristic, too. Well, the Rambam's like thousands of years after the Torah was written. Even amongst, you know, people, you know, even amongst the atheists who think the Torah was more recent, they don't say it was, you know, more than 2,000, they don't say it was less than 2,000 years ago. So, anyway, but we got codes all over the Torah. Like, for example, 9-11. 9-11, the entire, everything you could put into a computer for equidistant skips. And again, you would find (laughs) these words in any book. 
at equidistant skips. But when you get down to the smallest equidistant skips, so then it gets harder to find. And then you find every word you can put in surrounding 9-11, including the date 9-11, including the, the, um, the airlines, uh, Saudi Arabia, Osama bin Laden, you know, World Trade Center, which in Hebrew, you know, you have to translate these words to Hebrew. And you put all that in. Well, one, one thing's for sure, that if we wrap this entire room in the Torah, you know, I mean, if we just pasted it to the wall, you know, it would go all the way around the whole room. I mean, it's huge. So where should we find all those words? Random. It should be randomly around the room at, equal, at the smallest disc skip. It should be all around the room, right? Well, guess what? They are not all around the room. They are all surrounding. They're all, like, located, like, if, if I could put the, um, if I could put it on this uh, wall here. They, they all wound up here in one spot and no other spot. Meaning no smallest equidistance gift is it in the room. It's nowhere. But it all shows up on this one panel. That's not, and that's impossible. But yet that's what it is. And it's not just that, but the, but the story, it's all surrounding a story of the, of the building of the golden calf. Well, does anyone, anyone remember what it says in the Torah about how many people died at the building of the Golden Calf? Anyone know how many people died at the, when the plague after they built the Golden Calf? Anyone know? So it was 3,000 people. 3,000 people were killed in the plague of the Golden Calf. Does anyone know how many people died in the World Trade Center? Yeah, it was 3,000, but they actually have an exact number that changes sometimes. It recently changed. About a little, over a year ago, it changed again. It was 290, it was 2,000. 2,996, it just went up to 2,998, and they, uh, I don't know how they, that changes, but it did, they, meaning they were able to prove that two more people were killed from there, and they, uh, and it came to 298, but here's the, the kicker, is that whenever the Torah says how many people died somewhere, so it always says the number, it tells the number, only by the golden calf does it say, ki shloshet elif ish. Like 3,000 people. It actually, it's the only time in the Torah where it doesn't say exact. And specifically the world trades, and we don't know. We really don't know exactly. The number always seems to be like 3,000, but we don't know exactly how many people were killed there. And of course, what is the story of the golden calf? The story of the golden calf was all about, you know, false gods. About taking the power away from God and putting the power in man's hands. And Osama bin Laden himself said, that we're striking at the, at the power of America. We're striking at its power, at where, where they think they have power. We're going to destroy where they think they have power. That's exactly where, where the World Trade Centers were hit. Anyway, these codes go on and on. Another kind of cool one, which is bizarre, is there's a simple word with only four letters that should really show up everywhere at small equal distance skips is is the word Amalek. You guys ever heard the term Amalek? That was Asaph's grandson, evil dude. Yeah, so you would think Amalek would show up a lot. It's only four letters. Ayin, Lamed, Ayin, Mem, Lamed, Kuf, Amalek. That should be everywhere. Well, guess what? It's almost nowhere. You want to know the smallest equal distance skip of Amalek? I mean, this gets really weird. It's like 2,762 letters. Like, meaning it's Ayin, 2,762 letters. 
Mem 2006 letters. Lamed 2006 letters. Kuf. Well, how'd that happen? That's not possible. It should be all over the place. But no, it's nowhere except for this gigantic skip that almost spans the entire Torah. Well, it gets even better. Guess what the first letter is of the whole thing? It's obviously it's an ayin, but guess what word it's part of? It's the letter ayin of Amalek. It's like the first time the word Amalek, which was Asa's grandson, it's in Genesis. That's where it starts. How'd that happen? And guess where it ends? It ends on a kuf of guess which word? Amalek. So it begins on the word Amalek, it ends on the word Amalek, and we're just putting it into a computer to see where the skip is. And it's this giant skip. Are you ready for the kicker? Guess how many letters are in Megillah Tester? The exact number of the skip is the letters in Megillah Tester, which is all about Amalek's, you know, the king of, he was the, uh, Haman was the direct descendant of the king of Amalek, Agag. That's why he's called Haman Ha'agagi. And these are all real cool codes. And then everyone, of course, knows the famous code in, uh, in the book of Esther where the, ten, uh, where the dates of the Nuremberg trials of Germany are actually encoded into the ten names of Amalek's, Amalek's uh, sorry, of Haman's ten sons, which is also, like, I mean, that's just totally out there. It's like, how, how do you have the date of the Nuremberg trials of 10 Nazis, and it's not just that, because they didn't catch 10 Nazis, they caught 11. And one committed suicide, and 10 others are hung. Amalek has 10 sons and a daughter. daughter. What happened to the daughter? She commits suicide, and the 10 others are hung. So we see there's like, that's directly encoded. Now how Esther knew anything about the Nuremberg trials, and it gets much better than that, but I'm just giving you like peripheral. Another way we know Torah is true, and this is going to be a really backwards way, like totally around the back way. It's kind of funny, but another way we know Torah is true is that um, is that it just asks too much to not be verifiable. It just asks for too much. I mean, think about it. Just one commandment. I mean, any choose a commandment, any commandment, a kashrut, tefillin, you know, Shabbos. No matter what commandment you think of, that commandment itself has more laws than all the world's religions put together. And then there's, there's another 612 waiting to study. You understand what we're talking about? We're talking about, like, I mean, think about it. Someone takes the red pill in Judaism and, like, actually becomes observant. Their entire lives are going to change because it affects every bit of your lifestyle from when you wake up to you go to sleep. We're busy doing a lot of stuff here in our mitzvahs. Um, we've actually counted the laws. Asha uh, Torah, Levite Torah to count the laws. Um, it's 55,000 laws. So 613 breaks down to 55,000 laws. Well, that's kind of a tall order. That's a lot to do. And you'll see that no one's going to do that unless it's real. You might do some stuff, stuff people see. You know, like, like you know, you don't want to look bad. You know, all the ladies are going to light candles, man. I guess you should too. You know, like, uh, like some stuff, it just would look bad not to do it. But there are thousands of things in there that no one's going to see. Some of them are quite expensive. Like, I'm sp- I spend a few hundred bucks every year on vegetation, meaning like this cosmic vegetation, like a citron fruit, myrtle leaves, 
which is shrubbery. Willow branch, you know, a little willow branch, which is like, you know, you can't, you can't pay for such a thing. I mean, it's just costs nothing. And the, uh, normally, and, uh, and then, uh, and then of course, a, a fresh palm shoot that has not yet spread out into a palm frond, which is also free. And these are all free things, you know, <coughs> everything's free here. Uh, yet I'll spend hundreds of dollars to get, to get them to make sure they're just right. And, but it's not just for me. I got to buy some for my, I have three sons. Each of them's got to get a set. And then I'm going to move out of my house and throw parties in my sukkah, which holds a hundred people. There's 10 grand right there. You try feeding a hundred people, you know, six nights straight, you know, it's, 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 it gets pretty expensive, you know, even if it's 10 bucks a head, which it ain't, you know, but what's 10 bucks a head times, times uh, 500. What's that come out to? What? We have 5,000. Believe me, it's a lot more than that. We've got keg beer flowing and, and all this. Why? Because God commanded us to party on the pilgrimage. We've got a party. And so we throw parks. And soon, I've got to start fundraising soon, actually. <laughs> Last year, I was so proud of myself that I raised five grand. I was like, oh, great, this is going to be wonderful. Until I got the bill, it was 10. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh. Blew that. You know, I, I, it took me until Hanukkah to pay that thing off. So, which was my pleasure. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Oh, shit. What's that? Yeah, it's not a big deal. But please, God, this year I'm going to raise all ten so I don't have to sweat it this time. So much. It's enough I'm throwing the parties. It's not like I eat that much. I'm just making sure everyone else is comfortable and happy. What? Yeah, I'm in the band. I'm also the band. we got a full bandstand. So. Okay, let, let's just finish this up because it's after four. It's time to move. But I, I just want to um, share with you that the details, the expense, the, the uh, inconvenience of living the Torah lifestyle has to come with verifiability. Again, there's a backwards proof. You see, you don't need any verification for Christianity. There's no, they're not asking you to do anything either. You understand? What are you going to do? Say three Hail Marys? You know, like, what do you got to do there? You, know, you have to accept some guy as your savior? You know, wow, that's tough. You know, who died for your sins? Well, that's convenient. Not to mention you can act like a total idiot your whole life and accept him at the end. <laughs> you, know, like, you need to verify that kind of thing. And the only way to verify it anyway is by dying. You have to die to verify it. But obviously if they don't ask you to do anything, you don't need to verify it. It also explains why there's national revelation. Is if you're being, if you're asking someone to do a lot of stuff. I mean, imagine this guy comes in. What's your name? Moshe. Moshe. Moshe walks in the door and tells us that he's had a prophecy. We're like, oh, that's nice. And what does he tell us? He says that he, that all of us. And he's. It, what was the prophecy? That everyone inside this room has to give him a thousand dollars a year for the rest of our lives. What would we say to Moshe? We would say, if God wanted us to give $1,000 to you, he should have told. Who should have had the prophecy? We should have had the prophecy, not him. It's cute that he thinks he had a prophecy. We should have had the prophecy. But it's the same thing with God and Torah, is that if God wants us to do all that stuff, he better tell all of us. It's not the kind of thing you can ask just Moses to relay. 
You know, Moses, you mind relaying this back to everybody? We would, we would, stone, we would probably have stoned him. Like, we probably would have just knocked him out right there. You got to be kidding, brother. Like, God said, what? You know, but instead, we had a national revelation. And then we're just like, okay, Moses, you know, tell us, tell us how to do this stuff. You know, how do we do this? And so, and so that also is, makes a lot of sense. And then uh, you could also, you can ask a, a Christian pastor or priest or whatever you call them. They, you can ask them, do you believe God is just? So of course God is just. They say, well, how is it that he tells the entire nation to do all this stuff? And then according to you now, the deal's off, but he didn't tell us the deal's off. Because according to Christianity, the deal's off. And they're the new chosen people. Well, what kind of just God would, would put an entire nation into a commandment in national prophecy and then like leave out telling us that it's over? So until God tells us it's over, it ain't over. You get that? If God didn't say it's over, it ain't over. It's like, cute and convenient, you think it's over. And that suddenly you don't have to do anything anymore. But God didn't say anything to us, so until he says something to us, we're on. We're still in. Okay, and the last thing is transmission. We're not going to go deep into transmission, but I'll just give it a one-liner of how we know that the transmission of Torah through all these years is true. Do you guys mind if I say and or however or all the connector words while I give the one sentence? It's going to be a run-on, okay? So... The way we know the transmission is, is true and real is as follows. Um, first of all, it was oral. It was an oral tradition how to actually keep the Torah. All the transmission is saying is how do you keep the Torah. So it was oral for the first thousand years only to be written down due to Roman persecution in the book of the Mishnah, which was written down just because we were forgetting it during all that persecution and the whole Holocaust we had here under the Romans, which caused the, uh, which, I'm sorry, that caused the writing of the Mishnah, but because of the further persecution that took place due to the Roman Empire, we had to write down the Gomorrah. And that Gomorrah is the Gomorrah we learned today. So whatever was going on in the temple at that time, which started, you know, obviously at King David's time, which was only 400 years after Sinai. We were keeping Torah then purely orally of how to do it, only to be written down at the times of the Romans in the Mishnah, only to be written down in the Gomorrah in the times of the, of the um, also the later times of the Romans. And we have been going off that same Talmudic study ever since then, till today. That's what we study. We study Talmud. And our laws are all coming from that very book. Now, are there arguments in the Talmud? Sure, there's plenty of arguments in the Talmud. You know, there's, there's a lot of discrepancy, but the basics are all clear. So let me put it like this. An argument might be something like, you can't take that pot off the stove, place it down on a counter, and now put it back on the stove because it looks like cooking. But there's another rabbi who says that as long as you had it in mind, to put it back on the stove, you're allowed to. But the first rabbi said, what are you talking about, Willis? Yeah? Who's, <laughs> if you take it off, you can't put it back on. It looks like you're cooking. No, but the other one says, well, if you had in mind. Another one says, well, if you had your hand on it the whole time. Now, does that sound like an argument? Three-way? Now, are they arguing about the big stuff or the little stuff? Very little stuff. In fact, there's probably a lot of you in here who never even heard of this stuff. Because... Can you, would, what, do, what do all three say about cooking on Shabbos? Yes or no? 
Absolutely not. You understand that when we want to say, oh, there's so many arguments, who says the transmission's even good? Yeah, there are a lot of arguments, and none of them are going to affect your life, because the big stuff they agree on, that everybody agrees on. We all agree on the big stuff. The only discrepancies are in the minutia. It's more on the how-to stuff, on those details. Meaning Rashi says the tefillin is based on this order, with Shema there. Rabbeinu Tom says it's this order with Shema there in this section. Both of them say, do both of them agree we're going to be wearing tefillin? For sure, we're wearing the black boxes. Is there an argument about the order? Yes. So, so whenever we have an issue with transmission, it's not really an issue. And whenever we want to say, oh, those rabbis are trying to control us. The rabbis aren't trying to control everyone. Our rabbis have done more to cause people to assimilate than anyone in the world. Who has caused more assimilation than the rabbis? They make it nearly impossible to keep Judaism. So if their job was to control people, they would have loosened up a bit, wouldn't they? They would have made it a lot easier. And then they'd have a lot more money coming their way, a lot more control, a lot more community, a lot more constituents. The rabbi's job is only to transmit Torah down the generations because of the charge of Sinai. Their job is just to transmit it, even if the whole generation is going to run for their lives. The rabbis aren't changing Torah to make Torah somehow more palatable. They're going to transmit it the way it was transmitted to them, even if it causes people to run for their lives. Transmission has, been, has worked against us in a way, meaning making it harder to keep Torah, not easier. And, but because the rabbis are doing simply the job of transmitting what they were, they were given by their teachers. So the transmission has stayed quite faithful. You see, it does more to repel than it does to bring close. Okay, everyone. Shalom. Aslocha. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.